Thank you, Casey. Good morning again. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at one of the most famous miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ when He walked on water. I hear this referenced a lot in pop culture and uh, all over the place, and so lots of people know about this. I want to hear, I want to look at this this morning, and I'm going to do a, thing, a little bit different. I want to look also at the parallel accounts in Mark chapter 6. Verses 45 to 52, I think I may read that uh, as well. And then Matthew 14, 22 to 33, we'll look at that a bit later as far as application goes, because I think that's how we interpret, the best way to interpret the Bible, inter- Scripture, interpret Scripture. And so we're going to look at all three of those parallel accounts this morning and see what this means. So John, I'm going to read this morning right now. John chapter 6, beginning verse 16, and I will read to verse 21. Hear now the word of the Lord, as inspired by His Spirit. When evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But He said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Turn over to your left to Mark chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, two books over. I want to read this, they're both brief, beginning of verse 45. Just get a few details here added, you see the different accounts, good, these men were good journalists. Good historians. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. Now note that. That's not in John's account. But he meant to pass them by, which strikes us a little odd. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. They all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished. They did not understand about the loaves, but the hearts were hardened. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. May he add his blessings to this reading of it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are there and you have spoken. So God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your law this morning. I pray that you would plant it deep in us and water your word with your Holy Spirit and cause an abundant harvest of righteousness to grow up in us. We might live no longer for ourselves and no longer for our glory, but for yours. And God, I pray this morning that, as I so often do, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, grant me grace, Father, to preach. As one old Puritan put it, as a dying man, to dying men, for your glory, for Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Well, I love the ocean, and I love our vacation. Our family takes every year to the ocean. But I've got to be honest with you, I'm a little bit intimidated by the ocean. I'm always a little intimidated by just the roar of the sea and the largeness, the massive size of the ocean. And every year I will go to the condo we stay in and I will sit out on the porch and watch the waves come in and watch the waves go out, do my quiet time in the morning out there, just watch it come in and go out and kind of ponder the vastness of the ocean. Because I realize that a tsunami could come, and I think about these things because, you know, I'm pessimistic about things sometimes, so I realize a tsunami could come and completely destroy the house that I'm in in, in seconds and sweep us away entirely. That could happen. Usually doesn't, thankfully. Never has before. We need water, don't we, to sustain life. I usually have it up here with me. I don't today. But water can be deadly as well. So it sustains life and it takes life. And we see water a lot in the Bible. Jesus said he's the water of life. We preached on that. We taught on that uh, several weeks ago. But have you ever thought about that? How water, it's kind of like fire. It can keep us alive. It does keep us alive. We must have it, but it also can kill us. I think about Hurricane Katrina. Back in 2005, many of you remember that. It killed about 1,200 people and caused an estimated $108 million worth of damage in New Orleans and on the Gulf Coast. It was massive and terrible. Most of that was due to flooding. Most of that was due to the storm surge. In Japan in 2011, a tsunami hit. Killed nearly 16,000 people. Most of them swept away in just a few minutes. Water's intimidating, isn't it? It can be. Think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the sea is often depicted as a place of, of chaos and, and danger because the sea represents everything that, that kind of chafes and, and frets under the dominion of God. It's always kind of coming and going and boiling, isn't it? But it's still under the sovereignty and dominion of God, but it seems to boil and, and it seems a bit rebellious, doesn't it? Everything that's out of our control, but of course is under God's control. We see in the sea. I mean, think of Noah's flood, early chapters of Genesis. Think of the exodus out of Egypt. It was rescue for the people of God. God parted the waters and then he judged, brought judgment on, on Pharaoh's soldiers. So it was judgment for some and life for others. Because often when water shows up in the Bible, it spells trouble for somebody. And so here we're confronted again with Water. Jesus is the water of life, and so we see water again. Of course, we want you to see connections throughout the Bible, because really the Bible is about one thing, isn't it? God's redeeming love for sinners in Christ Jesus. The whole thing from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, that's what it's about. Every page, every verse, as we love to say here, whispers the name Jesus Christ. Not just here, but everywhere. And our text today is a bit like the one we considered last week. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most famous miracles in all of history. The miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this involves water. So we see the miracle. We'll kind of look at all the details here from the, uh, both the John and Mark accounts. And then look at Matthew here in a few minutes. This is a, what I like to call maybe a post-miracle getaway. This is the context. Jesus dismisses the crowd. He's fed 5,000. This astonishing miracle with five loaves and two fish. We believe that was absolutely as the Bible depicts it, right? Just as this is. Fed 5,000. Really, we said last week 20,000 people. That was just the men. Probably in reality 20,000 people. Of course, later he's going to feed 4,000 and probably another 15,000 again later in the Gospels. 
I mean, Jesus had taught them the Lord will provide through the miracle. We again looked at that last week. The disciples now go out in a boat in the evening, leaving Jesus by himself to commune with God. And right here, I think there's a lesson for us in Jesus communing with God. This is the Son of God, fully God, fully man, the incarnate Son of God, and he has to pray. He prays and spends time alone with God. What does that tell us? We who are mere mortals, who are mere men, mere women, we need prayer, don't we? Significant prayer. So this, this should shape our prayer life. I mean, Jesus went to be alone with God. He prayed to the Father, and so must we. How's your prayer life? Now, this isn't a sermon about prayer, but I want to I convict us right off the bat here because the Scripture does this, don't it? Does it not? I mean, Jesus prayed frequently. If he needed it, oh, how much more should we be compelled to pray? How much do you pray in a given day, a given week, a given month? Do you just go to him as kind of fire insurance when, well, I need, I need a big one here. You know, you see this in the movies. It's a man upstairs, right? I need a big favor. They run to God when something's wrong, when life hits the fan. But Jesus prayed without ceasing, word to pray without ceasing. So there's a lesson for that. So here we go. We'll pray another sermon for another time. But we read they're rowing hard against the wind. There's kind of a storm moving in here, a windstorm on the Sea of Galilee. The mountains and the valleys that surround the Sea of Galilee direct these strong winds and trigger often dangerous winds, windstorms, especially late in the evening. And this is late in the evening, maybe mid-evening. And they're there after the cleanup, the feeding of the multitudes, on the way to Bethsaida, which is just a short distance away when this windstorm hits and they're being blown off course. Imagine how fearful this is, as scared of water as I am. Man, I'd be freaking out right now. And they're, of course, probably freaking out right now. And evidently, they've been rowing for several hours, so probably tired. I mean, John 6, 19 says they rowed for maybe three or four miles. And uh, this tells us how fierce the winds were. There's a sense of fear surrounding this story. You kind of get this, don't you? In the narrative, in both of those narratives, also in Matthew, just a sense of, he builds the tension here, the sense of fear. I mean, creation can intimidate us sometimes, can't it? Just like it does me when I sit out and look at the ocean. I mean, my family, as you know, lived in Birmingham, Alabama a few years ago. We nearly escaped in one of the largest tornadoes in U.S. history. I actually saw that tornado from our front yard. Of course, you know, like a good hillbilly, what do you do when there's a tornado? Well, you go outside so you can see it, right? <laughs> you know, uh, you'll see later. I've got a lot in common with Peter. I said, man, I got to see this and get some pictures. You know, get a, get a video. Wish I had a video. I don't. But man, it was intimidating. Creation, God's creation intimidates us sometimes, doesn't it? But Jesus saw their struggle just like he does. He's watching over them just like he watches over us. And that's one of the lessons here. We're going to get to that, though. I'm getting ahead of myself. But this is the miracle, too. I mean, he's probably there's several miles from them. And so he saw their struggle in the storm. And what does he do? He comes walking on the water. And it's just the way the, the gospel writers communicate this, it's very matter of fact, right? He comes to them walking on the water. This happens all the time, right? No. I mean, imagine this. In Mark 6, he says he meant to pass them by. That seemed a little odd. So I want to explore that a little bit. I mean, only Mark adds this line. He meant to, so he's going out to rescue him, but he wants to pass them by. Of course, Jesus is God. He knows what's going to happen. He's ordained what's going to happen. But I think what he's telling in that, in that little detail is that Jesus made himself a, a theophany. It's like an appearance of God in the Old Testament, a theophany. That's what he's making himself here. 
I mean, God appeared to Moses, and what did God do? He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock so he can see his hind parts and he moves by because no one can see God and live. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I mean, the glory of God bursts through him this, in the shroud of humanity, and this is manifest to his disciples. Man, would you love to have seen this? See, you get just a glimpse of his, his divine glory in the, in the shroud of, of humanity and human flesh. He manifests this to his disciples. And I think this is why he spoke to them and, and said what he did about, about this. And they thought they saw what? A ghost. And I don't blame them. They were terrified. Mark 6, 49 and 50 tells us this. They assumed that only a weightless ghost could walk on water, right? I mean, people, they're heavy. No matter if you're light or heavy, you sink in water. Must be a ghost. And there's a hearty belief in ghosts in the ancient Near East at the time. In fact, a little personal aside here, we just had neighbors who left our neighborhood. They, I like to call their house the Ghostbuster house because they were Ghostbusters. That's what they did. They would go out and make films about the paranormal. So Jake told me this. He got to know them, Jake being the mayor of our little subdivision, <laughs> or at least a future mayor of a small town, I think. Uh, yeah, but they, they did this. They go out and look at ghosts. I kind of want to go with them at some point. I did not. But Jesus... They think Jesus is a ghost. They, who are you going to call Ghostbusters? I'm not in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, right? What does Jesus say? He says, take heart. It's me. Like, well, I'm glad, glad we've cleared that up now, right? Do not be afraid. And these are very important words. Jesus said, it's me. I'm here. You're frightened and I am here. Don't call Ghostbusters. You don't need them. You've got me This is the same word used in the Old Testament when God confronted Moses and said, I am, who are you? He said, who should I tell Pharaoh you are? And he said, I am who I am. He's claiming deity here. I am here. I am who I am is here. God is here. He's all you need. He said, you don't need Ghostbusters. You got me. I think this is a theophany. It's why he's letting them see something, just a glimpse of, of his glory. I mean, this phrase he uses would have been familiar from, to the Jewish audience from Moses' encounter, the encounter with God in, in the burning bush. It's an appearance of God. It's something only God can do. And we'll get to see this someday. Don't we look forward to that? He says, don't be afraid. And how, how do they react? Well, they didn't recognize him. They thought he was a ghost. Why did they not recognize him? Well, I doubt they were expecting to see him or anyone else for that matter walking on the water. And the, I mean, they thought they'd, they, 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 though they'd seen him feed 5,000, they'd not yet truly come to see the secret of Jesus' person. He is fully man, yes, but he's also fully God in one person, in the, the, glorious, the glorious incarnation, which we're going to celebrate here at Christmas, here in just a few weeks. I've seen people in my neighborhood have their Christmas trees up already. I'm not quite there yet. I'll get through college football season first, and we'll see, right, guys? So they say he's a ghost. They're not ready for this. And as Mark, Mark 6 says in conclusion, they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened, so they don't, they don't get it yet. God has not opened their eyes. As we know, you know, God has to open our eyes if we are to understand the truth about Jesus. And that's true now, right? If you're to be saved, God must do it. So Jesus gets into the boat, and what happens? The wind dies down. It's done. It's like the uh, calming of the storm. That was one of my favorite stories as a child because there's a lot of bad storms in Georgia where I grew up. And I pray, just like Jesus, I think about this all the time. But here he gets in the boat, it's calm. 
It's calm. The wind dies down. The creation recognizes its creator and calms down. I mean, remember how Scripture interprets Scripture. So now let's look, flip over to Matthew's account of this miracle. In Matthew chapter 14, we're going to see a very important part of the story that Mark and John leave out. We're going to see kind of the rest of the story that helps us understanding, I believe, the meaning of the story, the application of the story. So, because the miracle is great, but we always ask when we study the Bible, do we not? So what? What does it mean to us? What's the take home here? Well, this is the take home. And I think it's a glorious take home. Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 4. Beginning in, I'm just going to read the whole thing. Verse 22, 33. I'll be quick. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Okay, here's our context. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. It was the fourth watch of the night, probably 3 o'clock in the morning, something like that, when he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Okay, here's the new, here, here's the new part of the account. And Peter, you got to love Peter. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. <laughs> Peter, you got a storm brewing here. Peter wants to get out of the boat. Right? I got a ghost coming here and he wants to go to the ghost. Gotta love that guy. And so Jesus said, Come. Right? It's like what he says every Sunday. The invitation is always come. Come. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the invitation is come. Come to him. For the forgiveness of your sins, your only hope for eternal life. Come. Jesus says, Come. So Peter got out of the boat. And walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to, beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? I mean, he's fed the 5,000, he's walked on the water, and he's got little faith. Why do you doubt? When he got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him. Now, underline this. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now, underscore that, we're going to come back to it. They worshipped him. Don't miss that. These are little details. It's very important in Scripture. Truly you are the Son of God. Don't miss that, that confession of faith, a profession of faith right there. This is a major part of helping us understand the miracle. I mean, look what Peter does. He sees the Lord amid the storm. He does exactly what he expects a rational man to do. He gets out of the boat. It's in the water. Like another count says, he was stripped for work and he jumps in the water, puts on his clothes, jumps in the water, right? Put your clothes on, get in the water. Makes a lot of sense. So he gets out of the boat. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. Boy, if you're here this morning, do you realize, and you're a, a Christian, you realize you've heard the Lord say, come? He's spoken to your heart and said, come, and you came. Just like Peter came. If you're in Christ, you came. If you're not in Christ, you've not come. You need to come. We want you to come today. Today's the day of salvation. So come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Imagine that. He walks on the water. How cool is that? Man, I want to show all my friends. 
I mean, I love to ski. I grew up skiing, but, you know, I'd get out of the boat and put my skis on. If you ski, you know, this, you get out and start putting them on, I'd, I'd be worried. I'd always think about this and might probably make a joke about it, about how they need to walk on water. I wasn't walking on water. Peter is. So was Peter showing great faith or great foolishness here in getting out of the boat? Well, Spurgeon, and far be it for me to disagree with our dear brother Spurgeon, Spurgeon believed that Peter was out of the line to make this request. He said, what, Peter, what, did, what did Peter want with walking on the water? Spurgeon suggested that his name Peter, means, which of course means rock, might, might have warned him that he would like a stone sink to the bottom of the sea. So Spurgeon said, this is foolish. It's a fool's errand. Knowing that the Lord would teach him a practical lesson no matter what. He, I mean, he's not to do anything foolish in the future as this. There may be some truth in that, but again, I'm going to disagree with my dear brother Spurgeon here. We don't disagree often. It's dead Baptist to my revere. But I would argue that Peter exercised tremendous faith in asking the Lord for him to come to him and then coming to Jesus. I would argue that it's, this is faith. This isn't foolish. This is faith. It's like a paratrooper taking the, the parachute. You know, my dad's a paratrooper. Take the parachute and jump. Man, is that a leap of faith? If you're seven or 8,000 feet above there, you jump out of a, a, you know, a, a cargo plane or a perfectly good airplane. Man, that takes faith, doesn't it? This thing's going to open. I think that's, what, that's kind of what this is. In the same way Peter was trusting in Jesus at first, at least, at first, trust-ish <laughs> to keep him from sinking. I think he's showing genuine faith, weak though it was. I mean, Peter believed the figure he saw in the water was Jesus, that Jesus had the power to keep him upright, keep him from sinking to the bottom, hold him up. As long as he walked toward Jesus, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, that's the lesson. As long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he didn't sink. Think about that. He comes and as long as he kept his eyes on him, he was safe. But he turned his eyes away, what happened? When he got his eyes on the storm and on the waves, on the raging sea, he began to sink. Takes his eyes off Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to seek. He cried out, Lord, save me. His faith wavered in the face of the big waves. Now, we shouldn't criticize Peter or be quick to criticize him like Pharisees, right? Because it should be easy for us to sympathize with him here. I mean, he's not in the bathtub. He's in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, the raging sea. These waves are probably five or six feet tall. I mean, remember what I said earlier about the creation being powerful, the ocean powerful and intimidating? But isn't that exactly what we, need, we do when the waters in our lives grow rough? We begin to take our eyes off Jesus and look for other solutions, practical solutions. And friends, there is nothing more practical than God's Word and, and Jesus, right? The theology, who Jesus is and what He came to do and all these things. Nothing more practical. Now, we want real solutions. I had a man tell me once, I shared the, uh, we were talking about the Bible, and he said, you know, I know that's great, and I love those answers. That's spiritual stuff, and I need some real answers. I'm saying, this is real answers. Real answers, right? I mean, what does Jesus do? He rescues him. He hears Peter's cry for help, the cry of his son, the cry of one of his children, and he immediately reached out and took him, holding him by the hand, saying, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt but he rescues him nonetheless. And rescue leads to worship. What does this mean? I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll come back to that in a minute. 
see the meaning of the miracle here. And I want us to see six practical lessons to sort of unpack this part of Peter's encounter with Jesus here. Because this is what I think it means and why it's so important to us. And how it applies to us today. The meaning of the miracle. Six practical lessons. One, the storms of life often expose the flimsiness of our faith. It's easy to be a Christian when the sun is shining. When you see those Preachers on television with 10,000 people in their churches, you know, and they're talking about health and wealth and money. Of course it's easy to be a Christian when your bank account is full and a limousine, a stretch limousine picks you up and takes you back to your mansion. That's easy. Any fool would sign up for that. I'm not surprised. I'm surprised they don't have 100,000 people in their churches. What idiot wouldn't sign up for that? Beloved, that's not the Christian faith. That's something else. I don't know what that is. That's not my life. I bet it's not your life. I know your lives. It's not your lives, right? But the storms of life, we ask God, why, why? Well, the storms of life, why do you allow these things in my life? Well, they expose the flimsiness of our faith. I mean, when Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, he stayed above the water. But when he focused on the storm, he sinks. You have little faith. Why do you doubt? I mean, it's fallen Human beings, as fallen people, we are inveterate warriors. I know I am. Man, I worry about everything. I'm worried about not having something to worry about. When we are at a time of peace in our lives, sometimes I'm worried that something's going to happen. There's just looming fear, right? Why? Because my faith is so weak sometimes. And God brings a storm. I mean, we're filled with anxiety. Over 10,000 things that come into our lives and we tend to take our eyes off Jesus and focus them instead on our circumstances. God, I just want out of this. I want out of these circumstances. I want you to change it, and then I'll have my eyes on you. It doesn't work that way, does it? No, God's with you. Jesus is with them in the storm. He's with you in your circumstances. If you're his child, just like Peter took him by the hand, no matter if your faith is weak or strong, he's with you in your circumstances. He's with you in the storm. Why do we do this, though? Why do we tend to be so filled with anxiety? I preached on anxiety a lot over the years because I have it myself, and those are among the most popular sermons I ever preached. People say, man, I want to get the tape. Okay, I want to download the sermon. Where do I find it? <laughs> we used to get the tape. Some of you, you the laugh know what a tape is. Some of you, you kids ask your parents, like, what's a tape? Well, I think it's two reasons. Two reasons why we have such flimsy faith. We... And the first one is this, we fail to know and fail to understand who the rescuer is. We fail, to re we fail to believe or understand he's the son of God. He made the storm. He created the waves. He puts it under his feet. That's who he is. Why would you call on anyone else? Why would you call on your parents? Why would you call on your uh, therapist? Fire your therapist. Run to Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's all we need. And they say, well, that sounds really shallow and silly. No. He's all we need. We have flimsy faith, don't we? So we fail to understand who He is. If Jesus can walk on the water, if He can steal the storm, He can feed 5,000. If He can provide food for the birds of the air and clothe the flowers of the field, as He said in the Sermon on the Mount, can He not enable you to pay the rent? If he died on the cross for you, sent his son to die in your place as your substitute, will he forget that you need to eat? No, he won't. 
We fail to understand who he is. Secondly, another reason is we have small faith. He says it here, oh, you of little faith. Why do you doubt? When we're filled with anxiety, we are not exercising strong faith. We are living out of a practical atheism at that point. That's hard to hear, isn't it? We're living as if the gospel isn't real. Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. The Bible isn't true. We're not exercising strong faith. Anxiety arises from what? From doubt. And, and, and doubt is a form of practical atheism. So the storms of life often expose the flimsiness of our faith. Second lesson. Jesus comes to us in our time of deepest need. This gets more encouraging, I promise. Not <laughs> just exposing our sin. But Jesus comes to us in our time of deepest need. Need. The disciples are rowing hard against a strong wind. There's a good chance they might have been shipwrecked. They might sink. They're up against it. They need the creator of the universe to do something. And what happens? Well, he shows up right there, walking toward us on the water, comes to them. This is when he comes to us. I mean, if you're in the storm of life and you are either you are or you will be, then Jesus says, come. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am low, meek, and lowly of heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what he's saying to you today. Come to him. Because he'll come to you in the time of deepest need. We should always cry out first to him. To him. And I believe in doctors and medical. I, I know, I, I believe in all that. You know that. But he should be our first, our first line of defense. Always, always, always. Third lesson. Jesus rescues those who cry to him. He comes to us and he doesn't just come and say, you know, I'm so sorry. I sympathize with you. I empathize with you. I'm just so sorry. You know, I'm just, you know, it's terrible what happened to you. No, he does something about it, Right? He rescues those who cry to him. Peter cried out, Lord, save me. He didn't say, Peter, you idiot. No, he took him by the hand, right? Psalm 69, 1 and 2. King David said, save me, O God. He cried out, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Say that to him. He will rescue you if you're his child. You have this rescue. I think a great illustration of this is Jonah, the rebellious prophet. Another famous story in the Old Testament. Fish swallows Jonah, transports him, vomits him out. You gotta love that. The kids always love that, you know. Nothing like nothing more glorious than fish vomit. But it saved Jonah, right? This rebellious runaway prophet. Well, Jonah prayed in Jonah chapter two for the belly of the great fish. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Now listen to this. What does Jonah do? He's swallowed by a big fish. This fish has given him a ride, some transportation he didn't expect. He calls out to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, Sheol, the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep. God did it. God's sovereign. He did it. Into the very heart of the seas, and the, the current swirled about me. All your waves and the breakers swept over me. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you in your holy temple. Jonah prays, and what happens? 
God speaks to the fish and he vomits him out on dry land. And he's glad to be fish vomit at that point. He's rescued. Jonah cries out. This should be the cry of our hearts when we get in a situation and life is, life is drama, life is situations, right? And they immediately make us anxious. If we have him as Lord and Savior, we can run to him. And ultimately, I think it, it takes such things to turn us from disobedience to obedience. He brings storms into our life. Why? To turn us from, uh, from disobedience to obedience. And f- our, our failing faith turns our failing faith into a robust faith that trusts him. It grows us. It matures us. That's the only way we grow. Ultimately, Jesus rescues us how? In his work on the cross at Calvary. The Philippian jailer, remember in Acts 16, he said, what must I do to be saved? He cries out. We cry out to Jesus in repentance and faith and his, what he, who he is and what he did at Calvary. He comes to us and he rescues us fully and finally from our sins and from death. He defeated death by coming out of the grave on the third day, right? The resurrection, that first Easter. That's how he ultimately rescues us. Recall what we read in John 6, 37 last week. He said, if any man comes to me, what? I will no wise, to use the old King James, I learned it in the old King James, I will no wise cast him out. I will not cast him out. You come to me, I won't cast him out. No one cries out to Jesus and says, save me, he doesn't save. No one. As the old hymn writer puts it, Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He's got the pity, he pities you, and he's got the power to save you. He pities you. He pities you in your sin and facing death and facing, facing his wrath, his judgment at the end of time. But he has the power to save you. That's the ultimate rescue, isn't it? Fourth lesson this teaches us. With Jesus as our rescuer, we do not have to fear or be anxious. And boy, am I ever preaching to myself here. You don't have to fear or be anxious. We can have what I commend to my family all the time as a holy composure in life, no matter what we face. Because Jesus calmed the storm. He's put chaos and danger under his feet. You see that? Under his feet. He's walking on the water. The chaos is literally under his feet. I mean, look at how it ends. Jesus says, don't be afraid. He climbs into the boat. We have no fear when Jesus is in the boat with us. No reason to fear. If you're in Christ, you have no reason to fear. If you're outside of Christ, oh, you'd better be very fearful because there is a judgment, a payday someday coming at the end of time. Flee to him today for rescue. But when he's our rescuer, he's our Lord, we don't have to fear or be anxious. Why? Well, if you're his child... You are immortal until he calls you home. Psalm 145, 16 says this. Where did I get this? I'll get it from Scripture. You're immortal. Until the day of your appointed death, you're immortal. You can't be killed. This means we don't have to live in fear. It means we don't have to make an idol out of safety like we do in America. Remember COVID? Remember how fearful we were? We made an idol out of safety. I think our leaders made an idol out of safety. I see that now. Boy, you've got to watch the COVID numbers. It's been bad, it's bad for some people. We acknowledge that, but I mean, on the whole, eh. but we made an idol out of safety. We idolize that here in our country, don't we? And we can too, as Christians. We shouldn't. We must not. I mean, just as when he would, he calmed the storm and walked on the water, Jesus, if you're in Him, is in the boat. He's in you, in the power and the person of His Holy Spirit. Fifth lesson: 
Jesus rescues us in spite of our weak faith. Our weak faith, our faltering faith is not an impediment. Contrary to popular teaching and theology, it is not an impediment to Jesus' rescue of you. Why? Because none of us has strong faith like we should. It includes me. I preach this, study this. This is my whole life. And sometimes my faith is so weak, it's disgusting to me, and it probably is to God. That's why I need His grace. But He, he rescues us in spite of that. I mean, the disciples, they were scared to death. I mean, Peter's faith wavered. I mean, got into the ocean. The disciples' faith was often small. We see this in their walk with Him, how small their faith was. And so it is with us. When Christ comes to us in our misery, we reject Him because we do not believe He will come to our aid. I mean, we think He can help others, but He probably can't help me. I'm too sinful. I have too little faith. We might even reject His help when it comes because it does not come the way we expected or at the time we expected. You know, He rescues us in ways and at times, often at the 11th hour, that we would never imagine. He loves to do things the opposite of the way we think they ought to be done, right? He doesn't listen to us in His kind providence. I'm glad He doesn't. He doesn't do things in the way or at the time I think He should. Because I would do it like right up front so I don't have to be afraid. But when the storms brew and He comes and He rescues me, and man, I see His greatness and His goodness and His mercy in that, in spite of my weak faith. I mean, we push the way away far too often the very hand that has come to rescue us, and He saves us anyway. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad His mercy? Our sin, is, our sin is massive, but His mercy is more. We sing that here. We mean that. Only. I mean, what grace and what mercy. Our sin is, is massive, but His mercy is more. Finally, sixth, sixth lesson. Trusting God in the storm leads to intimate worship and a deeper walk with Him. This is why I had you underline that uh, here at the end of John's, or Matthew's gospel, the, this account. And those in the boat worshipped him, verse 30, saying, truly you are the Son of God. You see that reaction? When the, got, Jesus got into the boat and the wind ceased, so worshipped him. He did what we're here this morning to do. They worshipped him. And they confessed, you are the Son of God. They worshipped him. When we see Christ come, and meet our needs in the middle of the storm, and this would not happen without the storm, we grow stronger. Our faith is increased. Sometimes we even take a step or two on the water, right? We get out of the boat. When we see the Son of God come and experience His mercy, Matthew tells us they worshiped. They worshiped. And they give him the proper title. You're the son of God. They worship not just anybody. You, the son of God, son of God, son of man. They worshiped him. Their lives moved toward a deeper commitment. That's why it took the storm to move their lives toward a deeper commitment, a more intimate relationship with their Lord. This is what storms do for the follower of Christ. They deepen their intimacy with him. And if you're outside of Christ and you don't understand anything, you think, man, my life's just total chaos. No wonder. No wonder you have no framework for understanding life and, and death and trouble. But for the Christians, it promotes worship. 
It deepens our intimacy with Him. It reminds us that He is the Son of God when He does these great things, performs these great acts for us. Suffering brings us into a closer walk with Jesus. We go to Him. We take our, when we take our eyes off Him, sometimes we do, but He comes to us and takes us by the hand. For obedient to Christ, there will be many storms. Make no mistake. You know, there's a very real sense in which when you become a Christian, your troubles are just beginning. You say, well, boy, that's a real good advertisement for coming to Christ. Pastor, what's the matter with you? No. Oh, you have to count the cost. And I've got to be honest with you. When you're, because now you have, you have a bunch of enemies who are gunning for you. You have the world. You have the flesh. You have the devil. And they all want to have you. You have this unholy trinity. And they want to have you. But you have Jesus, and he's in the boat. And you're being drawn to him moment by moment in the middle of your situation and life and your location in life in a deeper fellowship with him through suffering, through these trials and temptations. And there will be danger and difficulty and weariness and exposure to the elements of life and anxiety and dread and sadness. We live in a fallen world. We live east of Eden. Let us not forget. We'll be all these things in, in a fallen world. We'll be open to what Kent Hughes calls the index of sorrows and stresses, which are unknown to one who's not committed to Christ. But we should take heart. Christ sees all and knows when we feel that we are alone and that no one seems to care. We're alone. He comes to us. He prays for us. Even while we're in the midst of the storms, remember he's at the right hand of the Father right now, this very morning, praying for you if you're in Christ, praying for me. Let me think about that for a moment. Right now. Right now, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's praying for you. Right now. Praying to the Father. Not the weak and tepid, half-hearted prayers that we pray. Outside of God's will, he's praying for you exactly what you need. And if you're in Christ, he's praying that you will stay and remain in Christ. You're persevering because he's praying for you. He's doing it right now. You don't, you don't know it, you may not feel it, but he is. What grace, what mercy. This is what Christ does for us. What do we have in Christ? <laughs> we have everything we need. He comes to us in the middle of the storm, treading across the problems, the issues that blow through our lives. Problems we think may be about to destroy us. This brings great, great blessing to us because we know God is in control. He's sovereign over every molecule and atom and subatomic particle. He's sovereign. It doesn't move. That is having first tell it to move and ordain before the foundation of the world. Then it move. And we venture out into troubled waters. As we do that, we, we cling to Christ. We draw closer to Christ. We cling to him and we draw closer to him as we witness his faithfulness to us as our comforter and our rescuer and our shield in the midst of trials and tribulations, in the midst of adversity. Jesus sees the struggle of his people just like he did their struggles to row across the water. He sees it. And a little thing like water and no transportation is no barrier to him coming to his people. And there's no barrier in him coming to you. Only an unredeemed heart. That's the only barrier. I mean, Scripture, as I said earlier, water often represents chaos and disorder and danger. 
But Jesus has put all the water under his feet. One more time, I want to say this because this is, this is beautiful. All the water under his feet. The chaos and the disorder and the danger of our lives, it's under his feet. He walks above it. And he has the power to lift us up above it in our time of deepest need. Trust him today. Trust him today. Flee to him today. As the disciples cried out in Matthew's account, he is the son of the living God. He's our rescuer. We don't have to fear the storms of life. They're under his feet. I'll leave you with these two verses. They mean a lot to me. Isaiah 40, 43. I think I've got these up here. Fear not. I have redeemed you, Isaiah says, under the inspiration of God's Spirit. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are his children. He's called you by name. When you pass through the waters, mm, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here. The fiery furnace, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What a glorious promise, beloved. What a glorious promise. You have that Savior. And finally, Psalm 56. I remember teaching this to my children. They were really young. And they go to bed. I want them to have this in their hearts and minds. And I want you to have this in your heart and your mind as I come down to this pulpit today. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh, what can man do to me? Absolutely nothing. He is Lord. Trust him today. Let's pray. Father, we are a fearful and halting lot. And our faith is too often far too weak. Given the truths of the truthfulness of the glory that we have such a glorious Savior and Rescuer. Give us grace, O Lord, to trust you when the storms of life are at their most dangerous point, at their most frightening level. Come to us, give us grace to trust you more, knowing that we're your children and you're our God and we have you as our shelter and our hiding place. Oh God, give us a strong faith and give us that holy composure when adversity comes that our lives might shine before a watching world like a city set upon a hill so that we are always ready to give an account for the hope that lies in us when they ask with meekness and fear, do this, God, for your glory. For Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.